Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. My name is Marcos Melissa. I'm here with Carrie Alavelt. Welcome to our weekly show about politics, Daily Coast's The Brief. Today is the one-year anniversary of the George Floyd murder. That murder shook up the world, leading to protests around the globe. Today's guest, who will join us later on in the show, is Yale historian Dr. Elizabeth Hinton. She has a new book called America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. And she'll argue that this is nothing new. The kind of protest we've seen is in the history, it's in the vein of a black rebellion that has been going on against militarized police uh, since the 1960s. It's decades old. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Hinton later on in the show. But before we do that, Carrie... We've been watching the Congress, Joe Biden, going through this sort of charade negotiation over an infrastructure bill that's starting to feel a little bit like the Affordable Care Act mess of, of 2000, what was it, 9, 2009, 2010, yeah. isn't it? It's not that bad. I mean, no, the charade yeah. looks that bad. But I think the thing is, is that I still believe the White House knows this is a charade and it's performative. And I don't think that's what the White House believed in 2009. I think the White House in 2009 was really trying to get Republicans on board with the ACA. And there's just too much history now and too much, you know, for, for, for the White House to ignore that history and, and buy fully into this. But yeah, there's this back and forth, you know, 1.9 trillion, 1.7 trillion. Now, you know, the, and then White House shaved off their original margin for um, the American jobs plan. And then of course you get the, the, counter offer from Republicans, which, you know, I use air quotes for because, you know, they're supposedly upping their amount that they're willing to pay, but they're not really giving any new funds, right? They want to dip into the old funds. And then, you know, they're, they're, they were originally not giving a pay for in a way. So they were saying that they would do 568 billion. Well, now they're going to do a couple hundred more billion, but they're, but they're not really upping what they're willing to pay. They're going to seize unutilized American rescue plan funds, apparently, is what they're suggesting. And it's not so, unutilized. That's well, money no, that's they're saying, towards cities and states. Right. They're saying it hasn't yeah. been spent and they're just going to, you know, scoop it back up. Just, hey, give me that. And, you know, we'll use... We'll use that. But the point is, is that their counter offer really isn't even a counter offer. They're not they're not upping how much they're saying they're going to fund at all. Now, and and if this is performative, you know, in the I mean, if it's not performative, oh, oh crap. If it is performative, <laughs> it's actually, I think, has given us really good ammunition for the 2022 midterm elections, right? And you've been writing extensively about this. Republicans have requested taxes in the middle class. They have requested raising the retirement age from 65 to 69. Right. They request, I mean, (laughs) you've been writing about this, right? They have lots of ideas. So here's, here's the thing. First of all, if you look at the American Rescue Plan, that in and of itself already attracted support that split the GOP base by socioeconomic level, right? So Pew did, pulled this a couple times and and both before passage and after passage of the American rescue, the pandemic relief, the rescue plan, right? And found that the, the overall package, particularly, you know, the direct payments were very well received as well as other things, the child tax credits and lots of things in there, the extended unemployment benefits. But anyway, it split the GOP base with... 55% of lower income Republicans supporting it. Well, you know, much lower level support among among the richer of the of the uh, GOP base. And then what we find is with things going forward that continues to be the case. So, you know, for for the American Families Plan, Joe Biden has suggested 
taxing people who make over $400,000 a year. Well, that draws support from about 53% of Republicans earning less than $50,000 a year, essentially lower income Republicans. But just 38% of Republicans earning more than $100,000 per year like that plan, right? Like, like the idea of pl- paying for all the things that are included in that with these taxes, uh, on people or, you know, high income earners. Carrie, so, I would argue that even a third, and that's more than a third of high income Republicans supporting higher taxes on wealthy uh, Americans. I even think that's a significant number. I, I don't think we I should think dismiss so it as, as I, only a third. A third of people who are probably going to be affected, Republicans are saying, no, right. it's, it's probably okay that we pay our fair share uh, yeah. to rebuild our country. Now, yeah, and that polling that polling was from Navigator Research, which is a consortium of progressive polling firms. But it sort of jibes with what Pew Research Fund found about the American Rescue Plan. I mean, you know, it's they're different plans, it's different policy initiatives, but it's a similar idea. But you, to your point, you are correct. I'm, you know, a third of people who earn more than $100,000 a year, Republicans, Republican voters earning more than $100,000 per year supporting that is is worth something, right? But it also draws more than majority support from people earning less than, from Republicans earning less than $50,000 per year. So there there are these, I mean, look, I've said this before. I can't remember if I've said it on this broadcast, but I've certainly said it in writing over and over again. The fact that Republicans are even at the table right now trying to, you know, what the White House is doing something sort of performative. I think they're trying to convince, you know, Joe, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, Senator Kirsten Sinema, who I don't know who else, that they're in good faith negotiating with Republicans so that when we get zero Republican support or maybe one. I don't know, but probably zero. Then they can say, well, we made this good faith effort and we got nothing. So, you know, come to the table with us and figure out what you'll do via reconciliation, you know, majority vote in order to get this through this infrastructure plan through that is, again, wildly popular. And how are we going to pay for it? I mean, Republicans aren't don't want to pay for it or they want to pay for some small portion of it by by reneging on the funds that, you know, Joe Biden promised and Democrats promised to to locales and states. But the fact that Republicans can I just I'll I'll just finish real quick. The fact that the Republicans are even there at that table. Right. They're doing something performative, too, which is they realized that this plan was so popular they could not afford to not negotiate on it. They could not afford to be the party that which is what they did with the rescue plan. They just completely they thought, oh, people will see this big price tag and they'll and they'll turn against it. And there's zero opposition, literally zero opposition. Fox News was talking about Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head, and it actually sailed through even with Manchin and the cinema issues. It sailed in without without really any problems. So you're right right, that now they're engaged because they're realizing they screwed that up and they've got to do something. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Agreed. Now, that 50 percent, you're you're right. It's incredibly um, I I think it's a a really important number. It's it's kind of amazing how you see Republicans totally uninterested in actual infrastructure because it really doesn't put money in the pockets of the the wealthy, which ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that's the only thing Republicans really care about anymore. I mean, you see that in in the age, you know, they used to be about strong national security, family values and lower taxes. The only thing they accomplished in the four years of Trump with those three supposedly founding guiding principles of the Republican Party was lower taxes. I mean, they had no problem passing lower taxes. <laughs> Family values, that went out the door with uh, Donald Trump. National security, I mean, they, they were making kissy faces with the Russians, right? So, yeah. it, And what it, about that deficit? Why not just add $8 trillion to the deficit over a four-year period that Donald Trump was in office? I mean, that's what they did. They added $8 trillion, nearly $8 trillion to, to the um, national none of that. debt. To the none national of that. debt. Yeah. None of that was there to help lower income, the lower income Republican base. And Trump was somebody who actually really <laughs> he tried to do base service. Right. He, he thought right. that. I mean, clearly he did that. He, he was good at it. 
Yeah. But even then, the Republican Party couldn't actually deliver real tangible benefits for that lower income base. And he kept them together based on that, that incredible power he has to tap into their lizard brain and get them to vote on, on culture war issues, right? Fear of immigrants, right. fear of black people. But let, um, me, let me add that, remember, that even he realized towards the end that these direct payments were going to be really uh, popular. And he was trying to get the Senate Republicans, while yeah. they were still in control, Control of the Senate to pass these, you know, I think two thousand dollars direct payments before before the election in particular, and then also even um, he kept railing against them and wanted them to pa- do something that, if they could before the January the January fifth uh, Senate elections in runoffs in Georgia. So even he had a sense. Look, these are really popular with the base of people that I need to get out to the polls and I need to get Senate Republicans to pass it. Of course, he just has no, he had no cachet with Senate Republicans. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're not. The, yeah. It's actually kind of um, <laughs> Donald Trump really did want that. He actually put his name on checks, something I wish Joe Biden would have done when they sent out checks. And even in that monthly child credit check, you know, I wish Joe Biden's name would be under because now there has to be a whole selling point saying it's actually Democrats that delivered this. And you're going to see that in right wing circles in those areas. They're not going to believe it because they it's they don't believe anything that sort of penetrates that worldview. They that don't said, believe that Joe Biden's president. <laughs> right. That's said. percent. If you are one of these people, let's say you're, you're one of these schlubs in Marjorie Taylor Greene's Northwest Georgia district, which is the poorest district in the state. It's also the, the, the most conservative right wing. They elected Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? I mean, that's the district. She represents that district and she reflects that district. If you're a parent in that district and you're receiving $600 a month, in a place where it actually goes far, maybe in New York City, Chicago, uh, L.A., San Francisco, that money's not going to go very far. It goes far in northwest Georgia, out in rural northwest Georgia. You're getting $600 a month and you're voting between having that check cut off and having that check continue to arrive every month. Now, I don't think a lot of those people are going to vote Democratic. I don't know if they can make that step towards but I could see a lot of people staying home and not just kind of like, this is confusing. <laughs> I don't know what I want to do. So I'm just not going to participate. 2022 is going to be a base election. I mean, this is the entire reason the Republicans are still tied to a loser like Donald Trump, right? Because he can actually get out the base in a way that Republicans, broadly speaking, cannot. So if you have a base election where you're delivering goodies, even to the Republican base, conflicting them and it and turnout drops even a couple points not to be a lot a couple points in those districts it could have real consequences so i i look at that republican strategy and and you know i don't want to gloss over the importance of of their proposing raising the retirement age to 69 because that was that was a house republican proposal the republican study group in the house said let's you know, they went back to this Paul Ryan like austerity plan where we're just going to cut spending to the bone. We're not going to take in any new revenues. And that's how we're going to balance the bu- budget and cut 14 trillion dollars off the, the deficit, the debt. Yeah, their most loyal, best performing constituency are older seniors. So they're, they're strategically striking against key components of their base. The only part of their base that's uh, that's getting any sort of service are, are billionaires because they're doing everything they can to protect those people. They're probably going to get something out of the Supreme Court, maybe on Roe v. Wade. So that that may be a big victory, although I would argue that may rile our side more than it, you know, than it riles their side up. They may have a mission accomplished attitude at that point, and our side's going to be up in arms if, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Um, I, I just look at the strategy and I don't I don't understand what they think they're doing heading into 2022. Oh. Are they just assuming that history is the guide and the incumbent party always loses lose seats? You know, that first midterm election I, after a new president. I think they're so, hoping I think they go to bed praying that every night. I mean, I think they're hoping that. Yeah. 
I don't I mean, know what if else that's is their there? strategy. They're just, well, no, I mean, look, none of them, none of them has a fresh idea, right? They're either trying to hang on to Reaganism or they're trying to hang on to Trumpism and hoping that that will. And they're managing in the process to sort of alienate all these different, um, all the different pieces of their base. Just like you were saying, let's just run through them. They're opposing all of these policies that are really, really well supported by lower income Republicans. Universally sort of opposing. Yeah. Right. The, right. They're opposing it. So, so they're they're opposing policies that the lower income Republicans and the sort of new Trump Republicans like. At the same time, they're, they're the, the House Republicans just put out this whole document where they want to raise the raise the eligibility age of Social Security and Medicare to 69. And they want to fundamentally transform Medicare. I mean, you know, it's like it, I can't believe that they like spent 10 years saying how terrible the ACA would be. But now they're going to re they're going to totally transform Medicare. Um, it's just it's nuts. OK, they're also going to they're also going to transform Medicaid. The whole thing is just nuts. So you're so that's the older base, right? That's the older GOP base that is not going to be real excited about those new ideas that are really just rewarmed, you know, Paul Ryan ideas from a decade ago. Cutting money. Yeah. It's cutting money that they're getting right now. Right. So you've got the lower income Republicans. You've kind of, you're, you're, if, if, if older Republicans are listening to what you're actually, they're actually saying, they're like, that doesn't sound good to me. And on top of that, then you've got the middle class and you know, what Republicans are, are um, proposing mainly as pay fors or have, you know, sort of like at least flirted with the idea of pay fors. And Biden has said absolutely no way is, is user fees, a gasoline tax in order to pay for, um, you know, the American jobs plan, right? Um, that there would be toll roads, tolls on bridges that people use and gas taxes and whatever. And that's a regressive tax on the middle class and the working poor. But the middle class will understand that that they are, they're saying, Republicans are saying, we want to, we want to hike taxes on the middle class in order to pay for something that corporations and wealthy individuals right. will mostly benefit from. Yeah, so, they, they're, they're broadcasting what their priority is, and it's right. not those suburban middle class, traditionally Republican voters that have been flirting with the Democrats the last couple of cycles. I mean, who who who's left if you alienate the new Trumpers? I mean, you know, they're trying to get the new Trumpers with cancel culture and whatever. But if you but but policy wise, if you're alienating the new Trumpers and you lose at least some of them, like you said, just a point. Or maybe two. I don't know. They don't show up. Trump's not on the ballot. They're not super impressed with what Republicans are pushing. They kind of like what Biden's done. Um, yeah. Some they of them actually admit it. They won't admit it. They won't admit it. They'll think it. But they might act, and they might actually, they, you know, some of them might not know, but some of them will figure it out. We don't need a high percentage of them to figure this yeah. out. So, you know, if you're if you're if you're alienating the low income, lower income Republicans, if you're alienating, you know, suggesting that you, you know, protecting corporations so that you can tax the middle class. So you're alienating the suburban voters. And if you're alienating then the older voters, I mean, I guess you just have people who are, it's just the 1%. That's what you've got that you're appealing to. Yeah. And even a lot of those might be really kind of unnerved by the attack and assault on democracy. So I mean, we that, would hope. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the parties are the Republican committees are all having issues with fundraising. We know that they've resorted to the scam where they where they automatically check monthly contributions from their donors. And so that's becoming a really big like little mini internal scandal with Republicans that they're so <laughs> they have no confidence in their ability to raise money. So they're it, literally scamming. They're scamming them. And within those fundraising asks, they're also threatening them. They're checking the box for recurring donations and upping the donations and things like that. So you have to uncheck them. But on top of that, they're saying, if you don't donate, we're going to have to tell Trump that you abandoned him <laughs> in all caps and you'll be labeled a defector in all caps. I mean, it is like it's like, Some wow. I mean, hey, you could be burned at the stake if you don't go ahead and, you know, give some money up. Cough it up yeah. right now. And, uh, you know, I've always been of the of the, you know, my argument's always been that money only goes so far. You don't need all the money to win. And, and oftentimes the, the part, you know, the candidate with the most money doesn't generally win. That said, they need some money. <laughs> and the fact that that corporations there's some cracks 
with corporate PACs and donating to Republicans. But so far, it's I think it's mostly holding together, right? This idea that they're not going to donate to anybody that voted for insurrection on January 6th. Speaking of another uh, issue that, that Republicans are clearly on the wrong side of, it's their opposition to the January 6th commission. But today is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And one thing I've been absolutely fascinated with is that the 2020 election was really run on, oh, you know, the blacks are rioting and they're going to take over your, destroy your city. And only Donald Trump can hold back the, you know, these, the rising tide of, of, you know, of rioters. Today is the anniversary and Fox News is totally ignoring George Floyd. In fact, I'm not seeing a lot of action in right wing media talking about the so-called riots and, and the scary black people burning down your, your cities. And I thought they'd take this opportunity to do so. And again, that's where it tells me they know they're on the wrong side of the issue, right? The conviction of, of, of uh, Chauvin, the, the, you know, the primary person who murdered George Floyd, is overwhelmingly popular, even among Republicans. We've, we've seen polling to that I effect. I haven't seen that polling. I mean, that just it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It's yeah. just not something that was on my radar. So, yeah, absolutely. They have. And, and, and overall, it's like 70 some percent approve mm-hmm. of the verdict. Right. So, again, Republicans find themselves on a key culture culture. I mean, I hate to call it culture war, but I think it is culture war issue. They're on the wrong side of it to the point that the entire sort of foundation of 2020, which was your cities are under assault, has sort of you know, evaporated. And they're back to, I think Fox News's big story today was that the Wuhan, the Wuhan virus, right? Let's, let's talk about the Wuhan virus. So the other thing they're, they're really, they really love is this whole idea of these new audits and keeping the big lie alive through these, these sham audits in Arizona that's already going on. And then also another sham audit that's starting up in Georgia, you know, that are partisan pushed partisan led audits I don't think we know entirely the shape of the Georgia one yet, but the but the the Arizona one is just pure sham. I mean, it is and re- led by a partisan pro conspiracy, you know, technology firm, Trump supporter led. I, I mean, technolo- you know, I would put technology in air yeah. quotes because That's they fair. look to be as as idiotically Trumpy and incompetent as you would imagine cyber ninjas to be. Right. So I, Here's here's something that's worth noting is that the Associated Press reported that when Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene went to Arizona for an American first rally anyway, um, outside of Phoenix, they got a bigger applause for pumping up the and pushing the audit than they did than than they did for hitting on immigration. And that and immigration is usually a big applause line for the GOP base, especially in a border state like Arizona. But they but they got a bigger applause line for talking about this audit that was going on and whatever. So I just think that that's telling now that this that that they're using these audits to really pump up the base. It allows them to feed, you know, this whole big lie, um, keep that alive, you know, pump up people, get them mad and angry like they've been disenfranchised. And, you know, and and somewhere around two thirds of the of the Republican base already is there for that. They already believe that they were disenfranchised and that Biden didn't really win and he's not the rightful president. So yeah, I'm totally OK if 2022, the arguments that they're throwing in 2022 are Dr. Seuss, Mr. Potato Head and Donald Trump is still president. Because remember, <laughs> that first midterm is always an, it's a it's a it's a referendum on that brand new presidency. And that's why nobody likes the incumbents, right? It's so that's why incumbent parties usually get crushed. And we're talking like an average of about thirty seats uh, that first, uh, you know, loss in the house. So if the argument isn't Joe Biden is bad because, but the argument is Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, I'm actually okay. Let's make it a referendum on Donald Trump. I think we're in much better solid footing arguing particularly remember this is a base election they have not republicans have not shown the ability to turn out their base when donald trump is not on the ballot we have certainly shown the ability to turn out our base a democratic base when donald trump is the argument whether he's on the ballot or or um or not we get record turnout so this could be the saving grace it could make it an anomalous 
atypical year in that we gain seats as opposed to losing seats. Or heck, even if we just stay even. That's all we need, right? We need to stay even. I'd rather not stay even in the Senate. I'd rather get us a little bit of a cushion yeah. so that we, we can render Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema irrelevant. But that said, this is not a good place for them to be. It's not a good place for them to be arguing Donald Trump when Donald Trump continues to be one of the most unpopular people, politicians for sure, in the United States today. And I think a lot of that is because they, they really don't know how to run against a white old guy. Like they, they completely, they, they, they know how to run against Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris. I mean, there, there's none of them are white. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, the squad. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the work, Bernie, you know, Bernie, Bernie is a socialist, right? Yeah. Not an old white guy who's, who's pro-democracy, but Bernie as yeah. a socialist, maybe. Yeah, but, with Jewish undertones, you know, you little yeah. Semitic undertones in there. So, yeah, so they got this white guy. I don't know what to do with it. And literally their argument has been like, OK, we're going to run against a squad and then we're going to say Biden is trapped by them, that they control Biden. It's like, OK, it sounds really convoluted, but uh, you want to try to make that argument. Yeah. Uh, did you hear about that office that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has in the West Wing where she just sits there and tells uh, Biden what to do? And you know, I'm just I, that's a joke. That's a joke. That doesn't really <laughs> exist. I just want to be clear because the next thing is going to happen. Is this going to be picked up by some right wing media? And that is not yeah. true. I, I wish she had an office <laughs> right next to the Oval Office. I think we'd be in even better shape. Uh, that's it. I'm not complaining about the Biden administration. Uh, we'll see how, how these negotiations over the infrastructure bill turn out. And if it is all performative, which I, I, I think there's as good a chance that it's performative than, you know, as it is that it's actually sincere. If it's performative, at the very least, it's exposed a lot of Republican. It's given us a lot of attack lines against Republicans in 2022. And a lot of I don't know. They, they want to raise your retirement age to 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 59. I can't believe it. They put that in writing. Yeah. <laughs> the House Republican 69. Study Committee. And just to be clear about the study committee, this isn't like 10 people. Right. It represents. I, about like one, about three quarters of the caucus. I can't come up with the actual number, but about three quarters of the caucus of the GOP caucus is in the House Republican Study Committee. So we're not talking about some, you know, small portion of, you know, it's not Matt right Gates and, and Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. This mainstream Republican. This is the. This is like the caucus saying, "Here's our, our ideas. <laughs> Scrap Medicare." Raise the eligibility age. You know, like that's what they're running on. Go yeah. ahead. You know, you so, guys go get it. Carrie, our guest is here. So I think we should bring her on. And I'm excited to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Hinton. She's an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Yale University and a professor of law at Yale Law School. She is the author of From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. She is also the author of America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. And that came out, what, a week ago, Dr. Hinton? So I assume that maybe you guys, you planned this, right? This was on purpose to, to really tie in the what we're seeing to, today over this last year, all the way back to the civil rights movement in the 60s. Or was it just dumb luck? No, we knew that it needed to come out now. We knew that we needed that this history was urgent and, you know, writing much of the book alongside the unfolding of the protests of last summer, but also the presidential campaign made the exercise of telling these stories and bringing this history out even more important. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it couldn't be more timely as we're continuing to have these discussions about the future of policing and racial inequality in the U.S., so we're going to get into, you know, a little bit about what you write in the book. But before we do, um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your your sort of your your story and how you came to do this kind of work. What motivated you to really focus on this police uh, violence topic? And uh, not only, I guess, in your in your personal work, but also academically. Right. This has been your focus as right. far as I can tell since high school, if not sooner <laughs> before that. Right. Right. So I'm an old millennial or an exennial, I think some people call it. I was born in the mid 80s and so came of age 
as you know, the war on drugs and mass incarceration were unfolding. I was about like 10 years old during the OJ trial. I had a profound impact on my childhood and also, you know, witnessed firsthand the ways in which these criminal justice policies, these punitive priorities played out within my own family. And I wanted to understand the larger historical conditions and questions that that created the kind of outcomes that we see today that created mass incarceration that helped me explain, you know, how and why relatives of mine uh, were incarcerated for for very long terms at, at young ages. And so this issue, these issues of justice and, and how we can create a more equitable system and our history have been central to my development, but also, as you said, my my academic and my scholarly interest. Well, I, I, I just I mean, you, you do you have more background questions? Because I was ready to get into the meat of the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually have one more before you do that. Okay. And, and it might lead into the meat of the book. I was actually fascinated, Dr. Hinton, reading some of your history that you actually wrote you. The intro to American Fire was sort of based on an essay you wrote in high school. Is well, that true? Parts of the intro. Yeah. So my the first research paper I, I ever did was um was using slave rebellions, using the history of slave revol- revolts under the term of terms of the Declaration of Unde- Independence to to justify the actions that the slave insurrections and and slave resistance. So basically, using the founding principles of this country, using the Declaration to say that that this was a form of political violence that was legit- legitimate. And clearly, this has been a focus of mine, of in, an interest of mine for some time, because I've continued that work right into America on Fire. And in the intro to the book, put the rebellions of the late 1960s and early 1970s within this larger trajectory of Black rebellion and the ways in which the threat of Black rebellion has haunted political and economic elites in the United States historically from Jefferson on down. Carrie, go ahead and get into the meat. (laughs) Well, well, so I I was just fascinated. I mean, I was just reading up a little bit on the book and I I haven't actually read the book just to be clear, but I will, I will, I will. I'm actually a very slow reader, so it takes me a while to get through things. But, you know, you you were documenting, what you found was this treasure trove of information from what I understand that had just been like sitting there waiting for someone to discover it about all of these what were termed as riots and you rightly i think reframe them or nicely reframe them as rebellions in the in the late 60s and early 70s and it wasn't a small number of them i'm going to shut up in a second and give you a chance to expound on them but you were from may 1968 to december of 1962 so roughly you know more than 4 year plus period by your count 960 black communities across the country had close to 2,000 separate disturbances um, where there were nearly 40,000 arrests and more than 10,000 people injured and 220 killed. So that's that's a that 2,000 separate disturbances in that four-year period is something that I think was kind of shocking to me. And the other thing you said was, it wasn't just in the big cities, you know, in, in in where you would kind of the large metros where you would expect this stuff to happen. But like, you know, Greensboro, North Carolina, Sylvester, Georgia, um, York, Pennsylvania, Waterloo, Iowa, etc. So take us back to your discovery of this treasure trove of information and, and what you make of it. Right. So until I had access to this this archive, which I'll talk about in a minute, I like many of us, and this is actually an assumption that went into my first book from the war on poverty to the war on crime. I kind of thought that the kind of period of urban uprising happened during the summers of Johnson's presidency and then peaked in 1967 and 1968, the kind of last hurrah after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination when 137 some rebellions occurred. That was, that was, that's kind of the narrative that we, that we told ourselves, but what's actually more 
more in- interesting and more insidious and tells us more about how we got to this policing crisis today is that the peak of the rebellion period occurred actually after the first major piece of federal crime control legislation was enacted. And that's the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which basically br- militarized and expanded local police forces and not just in the big cities, not just in Detroit and Chicago and LA and DC, but in, as you said, Greensboro and Waterloo, Iowa, and Carver Ranches, Florida, and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, smaller, mid-sized, and rural communities. And that's when rebellions really hit the fan. Residents responded to the expansion of police at in their communities and the policing of ordinary everyday activity, what we think of as zero tolerance today, by fighting back. I just happened to get access to these records. They're from the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence, which was formed immediately after John F. Kennedy's assassination. And the Lemberg researchers, they were housed at Brandeis University. They basically did quantitative research and interviews with residents and collected local newspaper clippings. That's where these stories really are. You know, they weren't in the national news. They're in the local newspapers. They collected these local newspaper clippings depicting all kinds of violence, not just rebellions, anti-war protests, labor disputes. And they happen to be in the possession of um, somebody who would become a friend of mine, Christian Davenport at the University of Michigan, who runs the Radical Information Project there. And he said... Yeah. Yeah. He said, come look. He knew I was interested in this stuff. He said, look, I have the archive for you. You got to come take a look. And it was just like, oh my gosh, there are thousands of these things that we miss. This is such an important part of our history and also a really important part of the black freedom struggle and the civil rights movement that we hadn't acknowledged. And that is that in fact, you know, in the immediate post-civil rights period, this form of, of, of violent, of political violence was the most widely adopted protest among young Black people, at least, and not just in the nation's urban centers, but across the country. And I think this tells us a lot about residents' initial response to the escalation of police force and the targeting of low-income communities of color. When you talk about the militarization of police in 1968, can you explain what the difference was before and after what that militarization looked like to your typical black community? Because my assumption would have been that the Civil Rights Act was enacted for a reason. It's because these communities were already being targeted and discriminated against. So what was the difference that created apparently created this new uh, spark, this new impetus for rebellion? Well, part of it is kind of the like strange nexus of policy in the Johnson administration and the and the and the ways in which liberal social policy took hold where it, it was kind of this uh, carrot and the stick approach where on the one hand, you have civil rights legislation, you have the dismantling of Jim Crow, the expansion of Voting Rights Act and the war on poverty. And one year after Johnson launched the war on poverty and actually a week before Johnson sent the Voting Rights Act to Congress in March 1965. He called for the war on crime. He launched the war on crime. And this began an unprecedented federal investment in local law enforcement. Never before had the federal government began be, uh, granted uh, police forces and taken an active role in the shaping of, of court systems. And later on, especially, you know, in the Nixon administration, um, take an active role in shaping the development of the nation's prison system. So this is a new investment that, that Johnson is making that that follows on the heels of uh, the expansion of of citizenship rights to African-American groups specifically. And so, you know, this is the beginning of the federal government granting local police departments and expanding local police departments through professionalization programs and job creation programs for police, but also it's the beginning of the transfer of surplus military weapons from U.S. interventions overseas in Vietnam, in Latin America, in the Caribbean to urban police forces. So the, the, the war on crime and the Safe Streets Act that I, that I talked about makes possible the transfer of things like armored, uh, armored vehicles, bulletproof vests, riot control helmets, helicopters, uh, tear gas, the kinds of weapons and technologies that are kind of ubiquitous in law enforcement today have their origins in this moment and and are being gifted or, you know, sometimes the federal government will give a local police department like a 75% off coupon for, um, for a tank. Um, but they're being gifted 
in order to help suppress rebellion. Um, you know, this is the war on crime is very much motivated by a need on the part of federal policymakers and awareness that rebellion is a problem and a continued embrace of punitive policies and police as the best way to solve it. Can, can I just make a quick point here? I was listening to a through line with someone who's probably a counterpart, uh, 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 a colleague of yours or someone, a counterpart of your yours at, at Harvard University. And he was talking about how every time the, you know, mil, the, the police professionalized, right, it worked out really badly for black Americans every yeah. time, people of color in particular, black Americans. So um, I'm listening to you talk about this and I'm thinking about how he was talking about, you know, just in sort of the early part of the Great Migration, how I think just after somewhere in the 20s, I think there yeah. was a, you probably know it, you can do this better than I can, but some Somewhere in the 20s, there was a bill where they actually made police, you know, formalized police and kind of right. made them professional. And and they were they weren't just this ragtag group that had arisen out of, you know, um, this the the pat the America's past and slavery and trying to keep slaves from, you know, going free and whatever. And so they professionalized them. And then those professionalized policemen are in the north then turned on the you know, black Americans who were migrating north. And so it, it disproportionately impacted black Americans once again. And I think that was in the 20s. You may know the legislation that I'm talking about, but. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it. So that so that's, again, what's so important about what happens when these efforts get federalized in the 1960s is that, you know, there's this drive for professionalization in cities like Chicago and, and Los Angeles, right? Cities w- that are magnets for uh, large swaths of Black Americans who are fleeing the segregationist terror of the South in search of better opportunities in, in northern centers and, and, and the West. And again, this is why the Safe Streets Act and the fact that you know, rebellion begins to happen all across the United States after that legislation is enacted is so important because that professionalization drive then begins to happen in the smaller cities. It happens throughout the United States. And the federal government makes that possible by essentially requiring state and local governments to make crime control a priority and to begin to plan, make long-term plans, set up criminal justice planning agencies to to figure out the best way to expand police forces and later during the Nixon administration, uh, prison, prison systems. And that's why, you know, we talk about how law enforcement is a local issue. We hear federal policymakers say that all the time. But this history really shows the ways in which the federal government turned crime control into a priority, incentivized and funneled all kinds of taxpayer dollars to to expanding the carceral state, to expanding police and surveillance and prisons. And we're still very much living in in the shadow of that policy choice today, that the, the decision to essentially bring about a structural transformation when it can, when it comes to the security state at the direct expense of the structural transformation that was also in question during the 1960s. And that is, of course, the war on poverty and, and addressing in a meaningful way po- poverty and racial inequality in, in this country. So one of the things that strikes me is this idea that there was these hundreds of uprisings or rebellions and, they were kind of lost to history because the only coverage that they got was, you know, maybe some local exactly. hometown newspapers and probably a lot of places you think were happening and they didn't even get coverage locally. Right. So who knows yeah. how many are lost to history period. Exactly. And of course the national news outlets, you know, they were, it was white editors. They weren't going to you know write about these rebellions. And if they did, it would be riots, you know, um, mm-hmm. and thugs and, and what, you know, what we've seen uh, consistently, what do you think would have been different had social media existed back there? <laughs> Could we have accelerated this march towards towards some kind of racial equality? Uh, or is this just a long running battle that we're just destined to keep fighting social that, media or not? That was quite a turn. I'm going to yeah. I'm just going to say and give you a second, Dr. Hinton, to okay. take that all in. Sure, that yeah. was like, woo, well, left turn something- in Albuquerque. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Historians make counterfactuals, you know, so it's hard to speculate on that. But I I, I do think so. So here's what I will say. I think what's so part of the reason why these incidents have um, or the police violence that's been existing for decades, you know, it didn't just start in the 1960s. But of course, I mean, as Carrie was talking about, 
the professionalization of police accompanies the targeting of um, of low income communities of color, which means expansions of police forces in those targeted communities, more police contact. And with police contact comes police violence because of the the foundational logics of American uh, policing. So, you know, the, the police violence and brutality has been happening for some time and, you know, in, in, in increasing ways um, from the era of the war on crime onwards. I think what's different now is that everybody has cameras in their pockets and we're beginning to actually be able to capture. We have proof um, in this video footage of the kinds of interactions that have been happening in targeted communities of color for years. I mean, black people certainly, and this is what the rebellions were about, have been trying to draw attention to police brutality, have been demanding for better policing, have been demanding for civilian review boards and and oversight over policing and tenant patrols and alternatives to public safety that have been ignored. I think Rodney King was kind of the first viral video in 1991 in Los Angeles when 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 Mr. King was was beaten some 40 times with uh, three foot batons and and four LAPD officers. uh, This. I think that started a new conversation about police brutality. But a lot of people think just like racism in general, that that this police violence is the figment of black people's imagination. And it took these viral videos and, you know, coming out really through Obama's second term and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And for some reason, I think in the context of covid the 10 minutes of uh, that 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 is captured um, in George Floyd's killing just really, I mean, galvanized the world. I mean, it, it's just such a tragic um, and devastating and, and unnecessary example of police violence that I think, again, in the context of, of COVID, when emotions are also running high, it was just like too much to take and compel people to, to get into the streets for uh, for racial justice. So I think the big difference, I think if, if social media, so to answer your question, if, if, if we would have had the kind of if information was shared in the way that it is now, then people might have taken police violence more seriously and listened to the, the grievances and the demands that residents were making, because of course, in the rebellions, you know, an encounter with police is the is was most often the precipitating incident in the 60s and 70s and then later the late 20th century exceptional moments of police violence but these rebellions were all rooted in socioeconomic grievances they were about jobs and educational opportunities and housing and basically to be treated not to be treated like second class citizens in their own city and in, and in their own country. They were about full political and economic inclusion, just like the mainstream civil rights movement. Yeah. And even, and Carrie, just really quick, I'll let you ask your question, but I just, one of the big factors in the, in that social media stuff, it's also the exposing of police as chronic liars because it was the police can't lie. They're public servants and we must take their word and, and the DAs are going to believe the police and, and just how rampant and blatant and, and, and they'll do it even with their body cams. I mean, they're so used to lying that they can't even make that shift saying like, oh, yeah, I'm on camera now. I need to <laughs> need to sync up my story with the video. They're not even trying yet. Right. Or they'll just refuse to show the body cam footage, as in the case of yeah. Andrew Brown Jr. It's yeah. like, OK, this was a justifiable homicide. Show us the footage. They won't show the footage. Again, an example of why more technology and police reforms are not going to get at the problem. Body cams have not actually prevented killings. And as we see, because police not only have a monopoly on violence, but also on truth, they don't actually lead to greater accountability most of the time. I I have so many questions, but I, you know, time is always of the essence. I just want to ask you, you have a pinned tweet um, to your Twitter account and and you quoted, um, I think it was a New York Times article about your book, a review of your book to some extent. Um, it was definitely all about your book. But anyway, and it's and the quote is, we're never going to get out of this until we understand how we got here. And I just wonder what that means to you. I mean, can we get out of this? Because we just seem to keep on having this revelation over and over and over again over the last couple hundred years. And it just keeps happening and it keeps coming down with the burden being born, you know, born by African-Americans and, and, and uh, people of color. 
Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big lessons of the book that's kind of stressed throughout exactly what you're saying. Like we have, the alternatives have been presented. I mean, you know, from the Kerner commission on down calling for a Marshall plan for American cities in 1968, this is Johnson's own Kerner commission. And he completely ignored its recommendations because he thought they were too radical because they were calling for a structural transformation. They said, if you really want to stop rebellions in the future, you have to invest in communities. You have to make a set of investments beyond the police. So we know what the solutions are. We don't need more commissions. And again, you know, the question is whether or not, like you say, we're actually going to gonna make the changes and, and learn better this time. I think that history is a really important tool in, in terms of getting us there. That's part of the reason why I wanted to write this book, to understand that that the, the, the fundamental dynamics and logics of policing have not worked. They don't keep communities safer. The war on crime and the war on drugs are arguably the biggest domestic policy failures um, in the history of the United States, certainly in the, in the late 20th century, and that police violence precipitates community violence. It doesn't effectively keep communities safer. And now we're in the situation where in the communities that are the most energetically and over-policed, young people of color are more likely to die either by each other or by a police officer. So the big task before us, like how, you know, like how we're going to move on from here is continuing to keep the pressure on. I mean, you know, drawing from history, the history of um, struggles for social justice in the United States, you know, have, have always been about people, about mass mobilization, coalition building, people getting to the streets, taking to the streets, people filing lawsuits, signing petitions, people keeping the pressure on elected officials. Um, those coalitions are really important. I think that we're seeing new and exciting coalitions forming that really, you know, came to the forefront last summer. But I think it's also, I mean, we have just such a long way to go in terms of hearts and minds. And, and you know, in a moment when so much of, of this history um, and the history of racial oppression and exploitation is under attack and is literally um, in some states, you know, they're trying to cover it up. We have to, we have to continue to, to champion the truth. We have to you know, continue to expand educational opportunities, um, not just to low income urban Americans of color, but rural Americans, everyone, so that we might finally recognize our true history and then be able to think, okay, how can we overcome the divisions um, and the inequalities that have defined this country historically? I will say, you know, that this is one of the good things about teaching college age students. I'm, I'm the, the generation Z leaves me hopeful. I mean, they really kind of grounded and steered many of the protests this summer. I think, you know, many, many of my students, my undergraduates, they kind of came of age during the Trump administration and now COVID and these protests. And I think they, they don't, they, they understand that this set of punitive priorities has is costly, misguided, and doesn't make any sense. And they want to build a different kind of society. I think that's what 2020 was about. And I think that's what the backlash that we're seeing um, among Republican elected officials and the, the culture wars about critical race theory is all about. It's a battle over democracy. And, you know, conservatives know that <laughs> their days are numbered because most people don't support their policies. Most yeah. people want finally, you know, a governance in the United States that's based on the principle of equity. And that's what the rebellions were all about. And that's what last summer was about, too. Carrie, we have time for one more question. Do you want to you want to ask it? I don't know. Do you feel burning? Because I can always I, I got something, but <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You can. Well, I just I will say that you know recent polling shows. Um, I think this idea of coalition building is so important, and I reported on the LGBTQ movement for a while, and you know bringing people across race and gender lines and sexual orientation, et cetera, religions. You know, together is really transformational. And I just noticed this um, this Axios Ipsos poll that was that was released and this week and it talks about how white it talked it talked about white democrats and white republicans and how very different their views of what happened is and for instance you know asked if 
the country has made the changes needed to give black American equal rights with white Americans, nearly 80% of white Republicans said it had, while just 12% of white Democrats agreed. And 12% of white Democrats was still double the 6% of black Americans who believed that the country had made the changes necessary, but nonetheless, much closer. And, you know, so I do think there was, you know, an awareness. Do you feel, you know, how has the past year been for you? Has it been hopeful? Has, you know, you talked about Rodney King. It happened in the 90s. It continues to happen. What has this growing awareness? And I do think there's a growing awareness that has happened among white Americans. How has it felt for you? Yeah, because yeah. even Andrew Brown happened right after the Chauvin yeah. verdict, right? I mean, it's it's not happening. like anybody's learning. <laughs> It's never ending. I know. And I, I just feel like I don't I, our dem- the future of democracy is at stake. And I, I think that the, the the events of last year and what we're seeing in Congress now and again, that the backlash that we're seeing just really underscores that we're that, you know, we're at this other kind of like once in a century, once in a half century crossroad. And if we continue to go down the the road of embracing police and prisons as a way to manage racial inequality and continue to, to, to disenfranchise marginalized groups and continue with the divisions and continue to protect white supremacist violence um, and uphold white supremacy. I fear where this country will go. However, I, I have to I have to remain optimistic. Like I said, my students, I believe, you know, if we do that poll that you're talking about in in 10, 20 years, it's going to continue to be a little bit different. And some people, you know, some of those white Republicans, they're going to believe what they're going to believe. But I think as we continue to expand our education and our knowledge about this issue, these issues, which. I think this this year has been a monument to. I mean, systemic racism is a buzzword. I have to believe that we will eventually, it may not be in our lifetime, probably not in our lifetime, but maybe in our children's lifetime and our, our, our grandchildren's lifetime, we'll bring about the kind of changes that we want to see and create a better and more equitable society. Dr. Elizabeth Hinton is the author of America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. That was an incredible conversation. I'm glad you wrote the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Carrie, I don't want to wait till my kids are older for... I know. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. God, can we just not push this off on the next generation? I mean, and I know that wasn't what Dr. Hinton was was suggesting should happen. I think she was trying to be realistic in hopes and expectations. I mean, she talked about the, I think the Kernan Commission. I've heard about that commission. And that blue ribbon commission seems to happen every 20 or 30 years after (laughs) some horrible after some horrible in- yeah. incident, right? It, or I shouldn't say horrible incident. Like after some tragedy, right, where where black folks are targeted and people die, and just you know, and and it it just keeps happening. And then and then the conclusions are always the same. And then we keep on not acting on those con- conclusions. Just like she said, President Johnson ignored them when you know he it came yeah. time for him to do legislation. Too radical, too expensive, too difficult. There's probably, I mean, at the time, of course, there was a whole Dixiecrat, you know, faction in in the in Congress that was going to block anything having to do with with civil rights. Do you feel like there's greater awareness, you know, among white Americans? I mean, I can't. I I, I think objectively, there's more awareness, both positive and negative, right? Because civics polling has shown that there is a lot of white Americans that were ambivalent towards Black Lives Matter. They're probably like, oh, racism solved. I don't have to think about it. And then Fox News told them, no, these are thugs and it's violent. And and they they Fox News specific specifically worked on turning Black Lives Matter protesters into the enemy, into othering them. Like, this is just the same old history. This is conservatives, conservatism 101 going back to, you know, the founding of our nation is to other Black Americans. And, and they did that successfully with Fox News viewers and conservative white people. That said, like you noted, liberal and even independent whites have actually moved in the right direction. There's more awareness. There's definitely a huge generational divide between younger white people 
being more engaged in that in that fight and having more skin in the game and being more committed to a more equitable America than older generations that are set in their ways and they're going to go to their grave thinking that there's no slavery, uh, there's no racism, and white people are the real ones being discriminated against, right? I mean, right. this is right. so it. There is that generational shift, and it's and it seems kind of inevitable. But I don't want to wait that. Like I, I think we can make. Yeah faster progress in that just to continue hammering on that definitely federal policy there has to be and at the local level you know there's places that are like newark new jersey is doing amazing work at the local level right but we need that federal impetus to force these as dr hinton said it was federal involvement that militarized and quote professionalized i, I don't like that word because it, no, I, mean, it's I, get, horrible. I get where it's going but it really mm-hmm. didn't professionalism means effective and efficient and and what they did yeah, is right is, is more, the get, opposite get more yeah. effective at targeting people of color yeah. i mean that's what that professionalization every time it came around turned into yeah so carrie we are unfortunately out of time i'd like to thank dr hinton dr elizabeth hinton for joining us uh, to talk about this important topic. I'd like to thank Walter Einenkel for producing the show. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, for listening and watching. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.